When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. With the Think Again podcast, we want to see what happens when experts are asked to respond to interview clips on topics they may or may not have any knowledge about. We want to jump with them into the unknown with no script, no preparation. Today I'm very, very happy to be joined by Orhan Pamuk, the Nobel Prize winning Turkish author of novels including Snow, My Name is Red, and The Black Book, these are their English names, and of the memoir Istanbul, Memories and the City. His new novel is called A Strangeness in My Mind. It paints a sometimes grand, sometimes intimate picture of the changing city of Istanbul from the 1970s to the present through the eyes of Mevlut, a street vendor. Welcome to Think Again, Orhan. Very pleased to be here. I am two-thirds of the way through your very long book. I've been reading it for a couple of weeks now, and I'm not the fastest reader in the world, and I'm loving it. And I am feeling very frustrated with Mevlut. Why? Because I want him to be more ambitious. Wow, I understand. <laughs> I feel... Mevlut comes from this society where Turkish melancholy, hüzün, teaches you to be modest, not to venture too much. His aim is to make ends meet and be happy with his wife. He is, perhaps, believes in the Japanese idea of nobility, of failure. He doesn't dare too much. He chooses decency over money. Don't be frustrated with Mevlut. <laughs> well, you know, I will say that I've also noticed, and maybe this is because of his attitude, that he seems to be fairly happy as far as it goes. I mean, his marriage seems to be the, a happy one. Uh, the challenge writing about Mevlut, who is a lower-class character, was that art of the novel does not highlight lower-class characters, only treat them as background or tear-jerkers. I gave a lot of effort, it took six years to write this novel, to expand, explore his individuality, make him a very poor guy, but in a way happy. 
person. The trick being, he is very friendly and happy with his wife. In order to write about somebody with his background, which I think is very different from your own in terms of education, like did you do a great deal the book of research? Is, the novel, Strangers in My Mind, is heavily based on lots of interviews I did with street vendors, waiters, people who sell just like Mevlut rice and chicken in a three-wheeled cart in Istanbul. It was a joy to listen to people. And I also learned that street vendors or poor people or anyone would be forthcoming if you are respectful and pay attention to details of the story. In fact, that I got the idea of making Mevlut elope with a girl from one interview with a person who probably said, oh, sir, my marriage was not matched. I ran away with my girl in a, such an ambitious way that I decided to make a turn in the story and make it an essential part of Mevlut's life. There is a mix-up at the very heart of Mevlut's life. Were you trying to say something bigger and more symbolic with that? I just think it's very interesting that so much of this man's life is based on something that was accidental. It's related to many, many things. The novel, in the long run, and in the end, is not about the story. It's about all these tiny galaxy of tiny details. All the things we eat, all the things we see, all the things we experience, all the things we have to know in order to survive in the streets of Istanbul. The story is intertwined with these minor little details I love so much. I think being a writer is pinning them down before we die. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. On, on that note, let's get to the substance of the game of the show. Our producers choose short interview clips from Big Things Archives. They could be on any subject, and they're a surprise to me, too. Are we ready? I'm fastening my seatbelt. Okay, fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> okay, this is Daniel Altman, who's an economist. The title of this video is The Brain Drain Game, Why Everybody Loses. Immigration is a really complex issue because there are so many political and social and economic issues wrapped up in it. And I think that as a result, you see very different priorities being set by different countries. The United States has an immigration policy that's pretty much driven just by political and social priorities. We don't have a lot of content. In fact, we don't have a lot of economic rationality in our immigration policy, either at the top end of the spectrum for the high-skilled immigrants or at the low end for the low-skilled immigrants. And as a result, if there's a global sort of beauty contest to try and attract the best immigrants from around the world to contribute to your economy, we're going to lose it. What we're seeing in other countries, for example, the United Kingdom and Australia, is a much more economically driven policy where they observe the needs of industry and they allow workers to enter as those needs are filled. So a lot of these rich countries are rolling out the welcome mat for the best immigrants that they can pluck from all around the world and really making it very attractive for them, more so than ever, to leave their countries of origin and go to a wealthier country where they might have better opportunities. Is this a good thing or a bad thing for the countries that might be sending them? Well, I think it could go either way, but I tend to think it's probably a bad thing. There are two major points about immigration policies. One is economical. We can see this best in Germany in 1960s when they needed labor force. They allowed Turks to come. Or immigration, as we see today worldwide, is also very humanitarian. 
people's countries are destroyed, people are afraid of dying, war is coming. They are not addressing your needs to find quality labor. They are just human beings, which reminds me of Günther Grass' great comment. We asked for labor force. They sent us human beings. The focal point of his argument is still around. Are we addressing the immigration and looking at that immigration problem and looking at it as a problem? Or are we behaving, following our humane instinct? Help the person without home. Give him a job. Not because your economy needs it, but just because you believe in the idea of fraternity. I wonder what your thinking is about how societies should in integrate the people that come into them. Homeland or, you know, your connection at any rate to Turkey is a very strong one and very important in your books and your characters. And then there's the sort of more assimilationist point of view which says that the newcomers should quickly learn the language and totally assimilate. Where, where, where do you sort of stand on all that? Because I think Europe is having trouble with that in right now. In the end, I am a writer, not a statesman. In the such situations where there's so much dilemma, and in democracy you have dilemma, Maybe I'll give you a personal answer. I was here in New York in 1985 with my ex-wife who was doing her PhD at Columbia University. And the first day when they learned that I'm here, my young American friends, intellectual friends, Orhan, of course, you are going to stay. Perhaps Turkey was not troubled enough that I went back. So I understand the desire to stay, hopelessness of staying. I understand the immigrant intellectual, the Persian intellectual, the intellectual from North Africa or Afghanistan or a Chinese. I have so many Chinese American writer friends who reads the local Chinese Persian newspapers. A portion of his time devotes that. I always ask them, how many hours do you read Persian newspapers, Chinese newspapers back at home? And it's an embarrassing question about immigration. Although they desire to belong to America, mm. most of them writing in English, getting published here, they're embarrassed that their heart is still back at home. And also embarrassed about misery, horrible political uncorrectness, repression in their back countries while they enjoy relative freedom, relative richness of American culture. I see that their eyes are at the back, what they left, feeling guilty, feeling sorry. This is the immigration experience I have learned in the United States. You are mostly a fiction writer, except for your memoir, and so you like to talk about other people. What, what is your own experience of this, what you are describing? I mean, you live here full-time now. Right? I, no, I live uh, one semester in New York because I teach at Columbia University. Okay. Then I return back home, ah. and I'm happy that I'm doing that. Repressive political culture, insecurity, sometimes hovers in Turkey, while I enjoy the details of daily life so much. Here I refresh myself with freedom of culture, freedom of expression, American New York libraries, museums. I always say I need to go to New York to crack the bones in my head. <laughs> and I, uh, then of course with the new head I return back and oscillating between Istanbul and New York turn out to be 
a happy lifestyle for me, but I am aware of the fact that I am very lucky. On that note, shall we see what the next video yeah, sure. is? Yeah, sure. We talked too much about this. No, yeah, yeah. Okay. We could, I think we could go on. Mm -hmm. But, oh my goodness. This is General Stanley McChrystal. Who is he? He was the U.S. Army general in, <laughs> in charge of the fight against Al-Qaeda mm -hmm. in Iraq. Oh, okay. Today's show is brought to you by Realty Shares. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not necessarily trust myself when it comes to investing in anything much riskier than a pair of movie tickets. And that's okay. If I need brain surgery, I'll go to a brain surgeon. If I need to invest as little as $1,000 and I want to put it into some of the fastest growing real estate markets in the US, I'll feel better knowing that the deals I'm picking have been evaluated first by professionals. At Realty Shares, you can create an account in minutes and while all investments are risky, you can rest assured that the people who spend their whole lives thinking about this stuff have carefully evaluated each deal that's offered. Thousands of investors use their platform, and Realty Shares has already returned over $10 million to investors to date. To get started, just go to realtyshares.com forward slash think and create a free account. Or you could just give up your dreams of being a podcast host and go to business school. And now, back to my conversation with Nobel laureate, Turkish novelist, Orhan Pamuk. When we first came into this situation in Iraq, we wondered whether it was unique to war or unique to that particular situation. But what we found is it wasn't really a cause of al-Qaeda in Iraq being special. They were focused and they were dedicated and they were pretty good. But in reality, it was the environment which we'd run into. And it was the two factors. It was this vastly increased speed, physical speed, but more than that, the speed of digits and information moving, and also the interconnectedness of everything. And what that produced was a situation in which complexity ruled the day. And what I mean by complexity, that the basic quality here is not that it's complicated, that's different. It's complex to the point where things are not predictable. And when things are not predictable and uncertainty rules the day, adaptability becomes the coin of the realm. As we studied this, we went to businesses, we found that the speed and interconnectedness and the resulting complexity are exactly what businesses and other organizations face today. Today's businesses and organizations that don't make this kind of shift find themselves vulnerable to those who automatically have. First thing I should say that in the end, he is a general waging a war in a far, far away country and killing people. Yes. Should we think business lessons from him? Should we take moral lessons from him? Or should we keep away from him altogether and focus on poetry, cinemas and movies? I am a bit slightly upset by the way he talks about waging a war as if it's only a management issue. Obviously carrying some of the prejudices um, Turks have, when, um, secular, especially secular Turks have when they are faced with, uh, with political Islam or even Islamist fundamentalists with a prejudiced thinking they are pre-modern, they don't know how to use video, they don't know how to use mobile. Well, as it's been said so many times, political Islam more so. Islamic fundamentalism is extremely modern and quick. Now that they're waging a war with America, of course they have to be even quicker 
Um, the idea that modern gadgets and equipment, engineering, uh, all sorts of digital developments will not be used by angry, horrible fundamentalists is misleading. I understand the idea that you have to be quick and adapt fast. I believe in that too. In fact, writing novels has something to do with adapting uh, to, uh, and getting rid of the prejudices. But I'd rather not take a lesson to a, from a general who is busy um, fighting a war and killing people um, uh, about um, um, lifestyle. I understand what you're saying, mm -hmm. but I wonder, for example, many of the technologies that we use were developed in the context of war. Mm -hmm. I do not like war. And there is also a history of war novels. One thing we learn from the art of the novel, writing about wars, is Stendhal wrote about war in a way that you don't even notice the center. You're just running from one place and other place. You don't see the whole thing. Tolstoy okay. followed that. And even Brecht followed that. There is no central logic in war. You see the details of war as Mevlut sees Istanbul from the streets and you will never have a sense of the whole. Victor Hugo wrote about street fights in Paris. In one street people are killing each other, in the next week they are enjoying their coffee, are not even aware of what's happening there. Here we listen to a general who has a sense of the total, while my characters and I, not being a governor, politician, statement, general, but a writer, I look at the things from people in the street, people in the trenches. You never see why you're fighting. You never see why the prices are going up. You never see why this shop is closed. You never see why there are police in the streets running after me. I tend to see the world from the point of view of not every man, but from normal citizens rather than politicians, statesmen who make policies and explain all to us in a clever way. <laughs> I think also that the more advanced the technology becomes and the more the world sort of moves forward in some ways, the easier it gets for guys like him to stand above the battlefield rather than actually I don't know being about on that. the battlefield. Yeah. Does technology mean that we get the right information? Technology means that we have oceans and oceans of information, but then filtering the information, in the end, no matter how much information you have, your instinct counts. You may, in fact, with too much technology, busy your mind with unnecessary information, mm. What is the information that matters? That's more important than the quickness and fastness and the pace of the information, I think. Shall we move on to the yes. next? Let's see what we have next. Let's, hopefully it's not about war. Anymore. Yeah, why did you <laughs> choose that for me? I didn't. I uh, had nothing to do with it. So that also shows prejudices. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Okay, psychiatry must stop ignoring trauma. Well, okay, that's That sounds good. okay. Yeah, that's no. not necessarily about war. Why? Did they ignore trauma? I don't know. We're about to find Why? out. Why did they start from, from Bessel van der Kolk. Who is that? That is a Doctor. psychiatrist. Psychiatry has always had a complex relationship to trauma. It, start, so it started off 
as a discipline that looked at way back in the late 1800s, people have very bizarre reactions to trauma. And so that defined hysteria. So there was some interest in it, and then they put a kibosh on it. People were no longer allowed to study hysteria. First World War breaks out. A huge number of traumatized guys probably had a lot to do with the rise of Nazism. And then in 1947, the last book about war trauma gets published, and there's nothing till 1982 or something. So it takes a long time, where psychiatry really doesn't want to see trauma. And in the current DSM, the what people call the Bible of psychiatry, now we live with weird diagnoses like oppositional defiant disorder, where people don't ask why did these kids become defiant, bipolar disorder, kids being mentally unstable, going up and down in their emotions. And psychiatry doesn't really want to look at what's behind there. And as a consequence, instead of looking at social conditions as being at the origin of these disorders, uh, these kids get drugged up. Last year in the US, kids got $18.1 billion worth of psychotropic drugs. And these drugs do calm people down, but they also work on the reward system in the brain and decrease curiosity, openness, experimentation, engagement with people. So the neglect of the issue of trauma in the U.S. in particular is a very serious public health issue. For me, the biggest trauma of life is, of course, unrequited love. My novel, Museum of Innocence, is extensively about the illusions of love I chronicled upper-middle-class Turkish men's obsession, infatuation with his twice-removed cousin. Just like a trauma, he can never get out of it. He is ridiculed and made fun of. And a trauma means you are almost in a war. You're panicked. You don't know what to do. You want to survive. And you lack the central logic that will control and heal you and perhaps pave the way out of the traumatic situation. My understanding of a trauma is that you want to get out of a situation, but yet you're so much pressured that your mind does not give you the clue out of the Kafkaesque way, out of that problem. Love is like that. Perhaps psychology, psychiatrist should focus about love, treat it as a trauma. I am against all this glorification, sugarizing, putting on a pedestal the idea of love as a sweet thing. I agree it's the sweetest thing, but it all comes with a bad package of trauma, longing, jealousy, anger, miscommunication, self-obsession, making you not see the whole picture. I'm a writer. In I want to be. I'm a self-conscious writer, a writer who wants to know the effects of what he or she is doing. But also, there is one side to me that makes me survive, perhaps, that is letting things go, just following the music that is spontaneously coming inside of me, colors, notes, words that I'm possessed with in the end. If you write every day, like me, sit on a table, every day traumas vanish. Perhaps because I know that life would be hard if I was working in an office, I choose the life of the solitary artist writing every day 
which avoids me from the pressures and traumas of everyday life. But it's inevitable. Life is, in the end, daily life. I mean, you are working hard. You create a structure. You sit down every day. You have a discipline. So somehow those structures are sufficient. Then you don't have to worry as much about trying to control the rest. In that... fact, I argue that a creative writer professor should teach more about this than what should be the plot, what should be, the, because normative structural policies about writing fiction is less important than teaching the would-be writer how to behave in life, how to take easy the regular systematic traumas, writing blocks, unhappiness, manic happiness, and depressive slowing down. Being a writer is more about minding your mental health, mm. navigating according to your moods. What section, chapter of the book you should write first because it's appropriate to your mood now. What to do when you're blocked and how to skip one chapter, skip one trauma, skip one problem and continue. I understand that psychiatry addressed traumas. I mm. thought they were already doing that. I thought <laughs> by the people were going to people and paying money because they had traumas. Now I learned they go for other reasons. I would go to a psychiatrist because I had a trauma. If I were to fall in love and never get out of love <laughs> and feel that I'm hurt, or if I'm blocked by my writing and feel that I'm scared of something, I had traumas, political, repressive, traumas in the past. In the end, they gave me nightmares, but in the long run, they just pass away if you are busy with something that makes you happy. And it's writing, writing, writing. Uh, yes, it gave me lots of problems, but in the long run, achievement of finishing something and being like a child, playing with his mm -hmm. toys, being busy with all the time, solves all the traumas of the world. I want to ask you, like, when you sit down and your brain isn't working that day, does that happen ever? <laughs> well, you that know, happens all the time. Then what do you do? Hemingway has a nice advice. He said, at the end of the day, if you know what you're going to write, don't write the last sentence. Keep it for the next morning. So start with that sentence. Mm -hmm. Once you write a beautiful sentence, that sentence will tell you what will be the next, what will be the next, what will be the next. When you're writing fiction, if you're in it, each sentence, you have a magic feeling that it's unfolding on its own. You look out of your window, you look at, say, New York silhouette or Bosphorus that I see from my window, and my mind, as if possessed, because I'm so deeply in it, you continue like that. Uh, I think if you work three hours a day, if you write three pages, if you work nine hours a day, you write not nine pages, but 18 pages. One's creativity goes up exponentially once you devote your life, whole life to it, even your sleep to it. The way to get out of our traumas, in fact, is to invent a second world, fictive world or artistic world that will avoid the trauma. But perhaps going to a psychiatrist who understands you may be something. But then maybe you can't write anymore. <laughs> yes, this is the thing that my friends always tell me. 
or when I see you're traumatized, <laughs> I can give you this pill, but maybe tomorrow you'll feel happy, but you cannot write again, is the central contradiction in my life. Perhaps because I'm happy, I cannot write. Perhaps because I'm so unhappy, I can write. These are reasonable contradictions. I think a writer's life has all of these variations, but in the end, sailing with goodwill and believing in the wind is the essential, and you sail on and on and on and on. And I'm writing fiction for the last 40 years. After 40 years of sailing, I have a sense that this wind will take me to a nice, quiet, good, beautiful place. I trust the wind and sail and sail and write and write. I don't think we can end on a better note than that. So, Oran Pamuk, thank you for taking time away from your writing to be on Think Again. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Please join us next week when I talk to artist and author and famous New Yorker cover illustrator Myra Kalman. And if you're listening and you're enjoying the show, please do us a favor and go to iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on and take five minutes to rate and or review us. It will make an enormous difference in terms of how many other people can discover the show.